stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. You're live with us on the Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. As always, very, very, very happy to be back. My name is Kings Lakipuri, and I'll be guiding you through the next hour. Joined by my comrade, who's been anxiously watching the Euros, I think. Greg, how are you doing, man? I'm all about Iceland. I think I think we're just going all the way to the top. <laughs> I didn't want to watch yesterday. There was just so much commotion with everybody resigning in football at the SABC. I, I almost just resigned just to go with the vibe. I, I wonder what's, what has a big impact. Jimmy Matthews' resignation from the SABC yeah. or Lionel Messi's resignation from Argentinian football? I, I'd, I'd say in pubs across South Africa last night, I'm going to go with Messi in terms of our sort of... Uh, information as a country, you know. Yeah, I still go with Lionel Messi. I think I think Messi wins either way. Anyway, just to jump into today's show, um, we're going to be talking about something that's been sort of on the on on the tip of our tongues and on the tops of our minds over the past month, when we saw the tragic shooting in Orlando in America, where a gunman walks into a gay bar and kills forty nine people, kill injures another fifty, and and I think that really made a lot of people, definitely made me stop and just think and say. When we focus so much on race as a primary lens of an analysis on what privilege is, we talk a lot about race, especially in South Africa. Do we focus enough on gender and sexuality? Um, and I think sometimes even I and a lot of us forget that the rights of those who are not, who don't conform to traditional views on, on, on sexuality and gender are often very discriminated against, either legally by the system or or by us individuals socially. And, and, and it's sad that it takes something like this for us to, to stand up and pay attention to what is being said by a lot of activists and by a lot of, a lot of people in the LGBTI community that, that, you know, that, that they are too being marginalized in a very big way. So we decided to, you know, spend this hour and take this show to, to dig into this issue, to speak to some of the activists on the forefront of, of fighting for LGBTI uh, rights in South Africa and around the country. I mean, around the continent, sorry. And also look at the, the, the activism from a wider lens and saying what, what are the gains we've made? What are the challenges? And also being a bit critical about what, what, what are the best strategies that perhaps we could apply going forward to make sure that across the continent there's equal rights for everybody. In just researching and looking at some of the stats, some of them were really quite harrowing. And I just want to go through this just to really set context for the next hour. Um, same sexual activity is illegal in 34 African nations. There's two countries on the continent where explicitly homosexuality is punishable by death. That's Mauritania and Sudan. And there's some parts of Nigeria and Somalia where that applies in some states and some counties. Even here in South Africa, where we are very proud of our constitution that provides for equal rights, when a survey was conducted, over 60% of people in the country, based on the sample that was surveyed, disapproved of same-sex relationships. So even in places where the, the law and the legal framework is progressive, if society's views are not where we think they should be, what is the impact of that? And remember, 60% of those people are working in government. 60% of those people are going to be in healthcare providers or police or, or in different sectors. So it's not, it's not just people. It's people who have to provide basic services to people who they disagree with their life choices and they disapprove of same-sex relationships. So I just really wanted to share some of those stats just to really set the foundation for what we'll be talking about. Anyway, enough from me. We're going to speak to somebody who's more, sort of much more uh, well-versed in these matters. We'll be speaking to BC Alimi, who's an LGBTI advocate, an HIV act activist, and was the first person to come out as gay on, on live Nigerian television. BC, can you hear us? Hello, BC? Hello? BC, can you hear us? Okay. Okay, we're just going to be working on making sure that we can get that Skype line clear. But but just to give... Hello, BC, can you hear us? Hello, I can hear you. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. Um, so BC, I mean, I've, I've been speaking quite a bit as we introduced the show, and we really wanted to speak to you, who's been on the forefront of, of, of fighting for not only HIV, but for LGBTI equal rights in Nigeria and across the continent. Um, I'd love if we could just start with, with your journey to becoming sort of the activist you are now. So I'd love to hear about sort of your journey um, with your own sexuality and how that led you to deciding I want to be an advocate and I'm going to be an activist and make this sort of a sole purpose of, 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 of what I do. Uh, well, first of all, I, I want to say thanks for having me yeah. on your show. 
um, well, I did not decide to be an activist. Um, there was only one profession in my life I decided to do, and that was to act. Activism was um, um, uh, a call, a calling um, that fell upon me, and one that I have little choice in choosing or rejecting. And um, I think I can, if I can remember very well, it started off um, when my best friend died of, um, of AIDS. And I think it was at that point I, I realized that um, I could do something more. And it was based on a conversation that I, I had with him on his deathbed that kind of like make me understand that I have a voice and I can use my voice. And I think by the time I was finished at um, university and I was going into acting and there were increased interest in what I do and who I am, um, I realized that coming out was one of the first ways of saving myself, mm. but more importantly, of fulfilling the promise that I made to him on his deathbed. Mm. And coming out then means that I consciously or unconsciously get the burden of a community that I had to stand up and speak up for. I mean, I I I find that that's so interesting when you say I don't I didn't choose to do this and and it it, it sort of just emerged that this is something you had to do to keep your promise to your friends and to and to live sort of as 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 truly yourself as BC. This is who I am, and and that sort of became an act of of activism. Um. <laughs> You, you make this distinction in your writing about this, this, this decision that a lot of people who are non-gender conforming or LGBTI have to make between economic security and their own sort of just sort of, sort of mental well-being and mental, and mental imprisonment, I think you say, between economic freedom and mental imprisonment. Could you explain that decision in you being, being in your acting career and still deciding to, to be openly gay? And doing so on television, knowing that that would have a, an impact on your economic and physical well-being. Yeah, well, you see, I've always said this. Um, when everybody asks about that event of me coming out on the most watched TV station in Nigeria, and what was my aim, what was I trying to do? Mm. And I've always said I wasn't trying to be a superstar. That was never that was never my plan. I was just. You know, that was the TV show I was in was my first biggest break in TV show. I have been acting on TV, but in extras. That was my first role, featured 52 weeks on a TV soap opera on Nigerian television. Mm. That was huge. But there was something that was locking at the back of my mind. And that is the fact that, you know, do I take up on this and enjoy the limelight? you know, make the money I need to make, um, get married, have children, but feel so messed up in my head and in my life mm. because I know I would be living a lie. Or do I take the plunge and be very honest to myself and say, you know, this is my life. This is who I am. And I need to, I need to be true to myself. I need to live my authentic self. And it, was, it wasn't a very easy decision to make. And, you know, and when I made that decision, I knew there and then that I was going to be the end of my career. I knew it. But I also knew that that was going to be the beginning of my happiness. And I had to choose between money and being happy. And, you know, many people have called me stupid. But for once, I feel like a very stupid, happy person. And I think that is much, much more important. I hear you, BC. Um, um, BC, I mean, in your career, you've, you've, you've had sort of a sort of dual, different kinds of relationships with the Nigerian state. Times where you were quite involved in shaping HIV AIDS policy and especially in how it, it, it interacts with the, with the, with the homosexual community. But also hearing things like the president's, previous president saying there are no gays in Nigeria and also having a president sign into law, um, that, that one can go to jail for up to 14 years. Uh, for, for being or being suspected of being in a homosexual relationship. So when, when, when you, when you've been on these two sides of the relationship with state one, a progressive mindset with a minister of health who's willing to, to combat AIDS and especially in how it impacts the, the homosexual community on the other side, you know, legislation that says that, that your, your, your sort of sexual orientation or your, or your sexuality or your, or your, or your preferences on gender or dating, that those things are, are, are 
uh, illegal and punishable by by jail time. Uh, do you feel betrayed by the Nigerian state? Do you believe that there's a, there's a, there's still room to to roll back some of those those legislations? What what is your relationship basically with the state? You know, my, my relationship with the Nigerian state is um, is a very interesting one. Um, I I grew up in the seventies. Um, when we were just coming out of colonial rule. And I saw in Nigeria that was extremely progressive. That was, you know, that was rich, a very rich country. Um, we don't have a good sense of governance, so much so. But we had something we could call political participation. I was born into a socialist family. My father was a very strong socialist. My, my grandfather, in particular, was a radical socialist. Mm. And these are the core values that, that I, I, I grew up in. Uh, you know, the value that paid for my primary school, secondary school education. Um, because without that, I wouldn't be speaking to you today. You know, the values that taught me that I am not complete unless the other person is complete, that, that collectivism, those were, the, those, those were the values that I, I grew up in. And, and as I grew older, I saw them going away. But when, politics be, when politicians become greedy and politics become corrupt, and then there was the advent of, um, of military rule in Nigeria, and that completely collapsed and destroyed the Nigerian, the Nigerianness and the Nigerian dream and the, any desire for a Nigerian state. So my relationship with the Nigerian, with Nigeria as a country, has always been that would be very painful. I'm not like the young generation that never that never had the experience of what it used to be like to live in a progressive Nigeria. Most young people in Nigeria now were born under either military regime or an extremely corrupt pol- political um, regime. So they had no idea. And that's one of the reasons why it's so very painful when I see my country, you know, going down the drain. When it's come to the issue of, you know, progress on LGBT, on HIV and MSM and the law signed by Jonathan, good luck, Jonathan, and the statement made by Obasanjo in 2004, I think we need to put it into perspective. And that is, that was why, you know, as at that time, mm. I recognize the fact that one, for Nigeria to have been able to reduce slightly the impact of HIV, it has to carry along the LGBT community, most especially gay men and men who have sex with other men. Now, this does not mean that Nigeria likes them. So I wouldn't use the word progress. It was out of necessity and it was also driven by international fund. The global fund would not fund HIV work in Nigeria if gay men and men who have sex with men were not, are not included in the process. So it was very much about the piper who owns the money dictating... Uh, and he who owns the money dictating the tune for the piper. Mm. And yes, we've made some progress. And also, in the last 10 years, those progress have been pushed back seriously. And most recently, 2014. Um, I find it interesting that you brought up the, the, the role of, of money in, 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 in how policies get passed and what, and what gets passed and what doesn't. Your recent writing has focused a lot on, on, on money and saying that you think the business... The business world needs to come to the party in a bigger way and perhaps some of the also the international NGOs like the UN and the World Bank. Could you speak a bit about what you think their role is in, in, in having more equitable uh, policy decisions being made by African governments? You see, like, you know, like, like I said earlier, money is power. Power is money. And, you know, if you give money to a monkey, people will worship that monkey. It's, a, it's as simple as that. And so... Um, Governments across Africa um, are being challenged by increasing militarization of their young people. You look across the continent of Africa, um, want to put things into perspective. Africa has the youngest population in the world, and, um, and including Nigeria as well. And these are young population without good education, which means without access to um, to to the competitive global, globalized market economy that requires skills that these people don't have. So in that way, this government needs to divert 
the attention of these young people who are being co-opted by Boko Haram, by ISIS, and by different militias across, across the continent to get them engaged proactively and get them employed. In order to do this, you need money. You need companies to come and invest. And this is where the power lies with the company because company can say, you need us as much as we need you. And for us to come, we have to sit around the table and say, your social justice record is bullshit. And we need to fix that. We need to fix justice record. We need to make it work. But not so much in our own interest. Because this is not specifically in the interest of the company. And that is why I made, I made that theory in mm. my article for mm. the World Economic Forum. About people, rights, and profits. Because this is the thing. Business needs people. People need business. But business need people need rights and right to economic participation, right to create wealth, right to spend wealth. And it's within these rights that business thrives. Because when people have the rights to buy and sell, business thrives. When people have the rights that in buying and selling, they can reinvest what they have into the economy, the economy will prosper. And so everybody gains from it at the end of the day. That's why I argue that business had a fundamental role to play in making a corrupt official understand. And the simple thing is this. These corrupt officials anyway will listen to business as long as they know that there's something in it for them. I hear you, Bissy. Um, my final question before we let you go. Um, studies and a lot of surveys have shown that even where there's progressive law, that a lot of the population living in those areas don't necessarily agree with with, with the right to, to same-sex marriages and non-gender-conforming individuals. So um, I suppose a very general question of what do you think, specifically in Nigeria, what do you think it would take to get the average citizens uh, to believe um, in the rights to, to those kinds of freedoms? And secondly, could you see yourself living in Nigeria again? <laughs> uh, well, to answer your second question first, <laughs> yeah. uh, I really do. I've been asked this question many, many times. I can imagine. Um, my relationship with Nigeria um, is it's a very interesting one, like I said, but I don't think I will ever live in Nigeria again. Um, I think Nigeria and I, I, I had a very bitter divorce. Okay. And I do not go back to my vomit. Um, that said, I still love Nigeria's country. Um, I was, I'm still very happy to participate in the good governance and development of that country. But I do not see myself going back to that country to live, unless otherwise I become the president of Nigeria. <laughs> you which I would have, have no my choice. Sure. <laughs> but, but to, um, in answering, um, your first question, yeah. um, you know, when when we set up the BC Alimi Foundation with the aim of researching Nigeria, of changing the hearts and minds of Nigerians towards um, LGBT people, we had a, a vision that given the trend things that are going, that in 20 years, we will be able to have taken Nigerians on a journey whereby they will start agitating and demanding for a non-discriminatory law on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. Many people have said this is ambitious, and I know myself that it's extremely ambitious. But the point is, I'm happy that we live in a globalized world with Facebook, with Twitter, with Instagram, and there's a level of connectivity that is happening. And we're seeing that the impact of that, not just on Nigeria, but on the continent of Africa. And so the discussion around sexual orientation, gender identity, same-sex marriage are not the problem of the United States anymore. They've become a conversation of the world. When the U.S. legalized gay marriage, it wasn't a discussion of U.K. alone. It was a global discussion that we were having about it. Mm. So in that way, that has kind of taken the burden away from people like me to say all we have to do is find a way to build on the global momentum that is happening. The difference... In terms of South Africa, it's the fact that why we want to take Nigeria on a journey to agitate for it. South Africans had it dropped on their laps, thanks to, thanks to Nelson Mandela. And there's a lack of appreciation of what it takes to have the most progressive 
constitution in the world. Mm. And that is why when people like me sit back and I see the mess that is going on in South Africa, from the ANC to the EFF, I don't know, um, the Mal- uh, Malela's party to the DA, it saddens me because South Africa was the model that we were pushing so many African countries to, to, to aim at. Mm. And that model is falling apart. You know, South Africa has the highest rate, rate of lesbian rape on the continent of Africa, hence in the world. South Africa has the highest rate of homicide of LGBT people in the world. This is really, really sad because mm. South Africa also has the best constitution that protects the rights of LGBT people in mm. the world. And I think it's because it was given to them, they never demanded for it. I hope that, you know, we will, Nigeria will be able to fight for it and appreciate it. And, you know, to also, lastly, to say something about, you know, what you talk about. The, Very quickly, BC, we're running out of time. Yeah. Unfortunately, what happened in Orlando will continue to happen to LGBT people around the world. Yeah. But the most important thing is this. There was a protection for what happened. There was, there was a protection for the rights of LGBT people where Orlando happened. And I think that is the most important thing. BC, I couldn't put it any better than that. Thank you. For your, for your journey, for your work, and for also asking tough questions for us here in South Africa to reflect on and, and go forward with. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Okay, perfect. If you're just tuning in, uh, this is Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. Um, and we're talking about LGBTIQ rights uh, in South Africa and across the continent. Um, so that was an advocate, an activist, uh, BC Alimi, formerly from Nigeria, um, and, and, and who had to actually flee from Nigeria after coming out on national television as being openly gay and had to flee to where he's now living in London, um, um, for his personal safety, really. Um, and, and, and he's really, really on the forefront of LGBTI, um, activism, um, and really asking really tough questions of other African countries. And, and, and I like that he challenged us in South Africa then to say a constitution is not enough. Um, it's great and it's wonderful, but you can't therefore sit back and say everything's fine. Greg, looks like you want to jump in. No, I, think, I think the point that he made about, um, uh, I think what some people call corrective rape of lesbians in South Africa, um, was a good one because, because obviously we know, and this is, this is one of the things that repeatedly get brought up about, about issues in South Africa where, um, there's a constitution and, and, and certain elements of rights and freedoms that are, that are highly respected. But in practice, it doesn't always, doesn't always equate. And one of the key things is, I think, with, with the sort of systemic targeting of, of often black lesbians, um, in South Africa is that it often seems apparent that there's little accountability for, for such hate crimes. And that's, and that's one of the issues too that people are talking about, um, and, and it might even happen this year. Where, where such, such types of hate crimes get, get included in the legislation and hopefully that can be a stronger deterrent. Oh yes, I remember when we were doing our research and looking at sort of trying to find the quote unquote cutting edge of, of, of what, what are some of the key legislations we need to be paying attention to. Cause I fear that sometimes when we talk about, uh, non-gender conforming or LGBTI LGBT rights, it can be so, so general and so abstract that I think we sometimes get lost in that. So I like the idea of targeting specific things like saying, is this has classified as a hate crime? Is it penalized differently so that we can organize our sort of media focus and, and, and activism attention to target specific things. And I think there's a benefit to that. Anyway, I'm told that we're just ready to jump into our next call. This is Dr. Ashley Currier, who's associate professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at the University of Cincinnati. Uh, doctor can hear us. Yes, it's a pleasure to join you. Perfect. Thank you so much, uh, Ashley. So, so for our listeners who may not know, uh, you released a book. I'm not sure. I think it was a couple of years ago, was it? Um, out in Africa, LGBT organizing in Namibia and South Africa. And it just provides, I think, both a comprehensive history of some of these issues, but also a really sort of frank and open look at some of the strategies that different organizations in this space have used. And one of the things that really stu- stood out for me that um, that I don't think I really thought about too much or didn't really understand is this, is this different theories of visibility and invisibility in this sort of space. Can you just unpack those terms and, and what it refers to regarding this activist movement? Certainly. Um, a lot of scholars tend to assume that, um, when movements are visible, they, uh, they attain a great, um, media influence. They, that they, 
um, are able to um, be represented in the media quite a bit. And so when movements don't have a media presence, scholars tend to assume that activi- that these, these uh, activists are dormant, um, that they're underground, um, that they actually don't even exist. And so what drove my interest in this with this book was to try to distinguish between the fact that some organizations are interested in trying to remain invisible because they're trying to protect constituents, they're trying to manage their public presentations. Um, And in other circumstances, organizations seek public visibility in order to influence and control how they're seen. Mm -hmm. And we know in the South African space, as we were just talking about, sometimes there are quite heavy risks for for stepping out for some of these sort of members of these organizations or as as um, a member or, or, or identifying with any of the sort of LGBT groups, would that be a case where people sort of choose more the invisible element? Certainly they can. Um, in, in one case study I've done, I did um, about uh, a few years ago with the Forum for the Empowerment of Women, a black lesbian um, movement organization based in Johannesburg, um, when the organization chose to participate in the um, protests outside of President Jacob Zuma's rape trial in 2006. Um, Members who were there uh, seeking out feminist and HIV AIDS activist allies at the protests um, were confronted with Zuma supporters, and they had to make a decision at that point in time. Do we announce our presence as black lesbian activists here in this space when there could be great personal risk? Um, and at that point in time, they, they chose not to um, participate in the protest that particular day. But subsequently, they came out in full force and joined um, the, 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 the protests um, that were supporting the um, rape survivor. It seems to be quite, quite a sort of nuanced view, this, this decision to sometimes have to hold back um, as a way of going forward that I'd imagine some... Um, sort of Western donors and, and people looking for, you know, for the most sort of action may not sort of understand some of these local nuances? I agree. Um, sometimes when it comes to visibility, it's a, it's a spontaneous decision that activists have to make, um, or they're thrust into a, a position or scenario that where decisions, they must take decisions, um, quite quickly or risk, um, a scenario escaping their control. Um, and in those cases, you know, it, it's very, it's difficult to negotiate with donors around this is our strategy. We've investigated it. We've taken a great deal of time to, you know, plan our next steps. So in some cases, act, I mean, activists need the autonomy to take these decisions about visibility strategies. Mm-hmm. Now, these issues, I, I assume, also have quite a... Um, relation to South Africa's history and current issues of race relations, I'd imagine, comparing to who can step out and when and who wants to employ what strategies to take their movements forward. Absolutely. I mean, and one, one thing that activists, um, consistently have been challenging over the past, you know, few decades is this dispelling this misconception that homosexuality and LGBTI organizing are un African, for instance. That is a controlling, image that um, activists seek to free themselves um, from. So in terms of a visibility strategy, that's something that a variety of organize, organizations um, have to negotiate in, in, in different ways. And certainly the, um, comp- the racial composition of the leadership of different organizations um, mm. has, ch- has changed over time um, in response to the growing empowered um, constituencies among LGBTI communities. Um, so you're absolutely right that um, race relations continue to be an important element in visibility strategies of LGBTI organizations in South Africa. Just just on the point about um, different organizations and activists challenging this quite pervasive idea well well, it's obviously being challenged but still still quite strong idea that um lgbt uh, sort of identities aren't aren't african that they're that they sort of historically imported um uh trends and and almost almost immoral acts how how are the activists challenging that because it isn't 
isn't something easy to point out. You know, if you point out some of the some of the legislation that comes from colonialism and things like that, a lot of people seem to just sort of close their ears to to that sort of information and say, no, this is our African identity. How how are activists challenging these things? Activists are doing their own research. Um, activists have been doing collecting oral histories with members of their communities to document um, same-sex relationships, gender diversity, um, you know, different forms of organizing historically, and working with um, archivists, for instance, at Gay and Lesbian Memory in Action um, to to um, circulate these uh, narratives. Um, activists are publishing memoirs um, to dispel these misconceptions. Um, and activists are going out and they're educating members of their um, own communities, whether it's in rural, rural or urban areas, to sensitize members of their communities to the diversity of gender and sexuality um, locally. All right, Doctor, thank you so much. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Thanks for breaking it down. I think Greg and I were struggling with some of the nuance, so it really helps for somebody to come in and and sort of give us the detail. My pleasure. Perfect, thank you. So Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central, just going to go into a quick ad break. We'll be right back. Choice. Sometimes you have it, and sometimes you don't. AutoTrader gives you the choice. Now you can shop, compare, and buy new cars. Watch our expert video reviews and research before you buy. Auto Trader New Car. The choice is yours. Good afternoon. You're back on the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. If you're just tuning in or engaging with us on Twitter, we're talking about LGBTI rights across the continent and, and also a strong focus locally here in South Africa. Um, Greg, something we talked about is when I was doing my research, I found a really, really interesting study that's coming out of India. And it's a very sort of small localized um Localized, um, not survey, but research that was done, um, by Dr. Uh, Lee Badgett. And, 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 and she was trying to establish the, the economic cost of homophobia. I'm saying we talk a lot about the social impact of what it means when somebody's an outcast and, and when somebody doesn't have their dignity and freedom. We talk about that a lot. But what if we could, what if we could back this argument up with, with some numbers? So she went through and she, and she, and she sort of listed what is homophobia into different groups. So it's, it's risk of violence, it's being put in prison, it's job loss, it's discrimination, and so on, right? And then tried to find what are the individual effects of that on a person, right? So if I'm less productive at work because I can't find work, or because I'm harassed at work, or if I earn less because of, of my gender or my sexuality, or I'm more likely to be in poverty, and try to list all those things on an individual level. And then went a step further to look at, so what are the macro effects of this, right? Of people who are contributing less to the economy, people who have less inv- less incentive to study or less incentive to, to invest in their own human capital because what's the point? If I can't find work, I'm not going to be spending all of my time improving myself because what's the point? And then also the cost of, of higher health care, right? So it's people who are, who are, who, who, who need greater access to healthcare services or people who are often, you know, physically abused and physically harmed and saying, so what is the cost of all this? And then try to assign numbers to everything at a micro level. And, and it was fascinating that the, the, the estimate in the end was saying that the, the economic cost of homophobia, and that will be focusing on India, was up to between 0.1 and 1.7% of the GDP. Which is huge. I mean, just like, just looking at that and I, I just couldn't believe it. And looking at, and then this is purely numbers, right? So we're not saying that the, that, that there's no value to dignity and there's no value to freedom, but we're saying, okay, if you want to talk numbers, let's talk numbers. And saying in, in an economy where countries are really struggling to grow. And, and if you look locally here in South Africa, if you could offer, if you could walk up to the president or finance minister and say, I'll give you 2% extra growth in your GDP, <laughs> I think they'd take it, right? So it's just so fascinating for me to, to say, and of course it's based in India and there's a a lot of differences but just to say just imagine if you could have up to 1.7 percent increase in your gdp by doing the right thing i'd love to hear some of the reaction to that to that study from from government guys uh whether it sort of caught traction and whether it was looked at as you know if we if we confront the issue in this case of homophobia 
can we grow the economy? And is that something that we're going to link together? I mean, that'd be awesome. I imagine if you could just bypass sort of the, the, the sort of some of the health and the, and the gender ministries and go right to the finance and treasury guys and say, they'll be like, whatever it is, just do it. Did you say 1.7% anytime? Um, anyway, I'll share a link to the survey for anybody who's interested. I just found it really fascinating that, that, that there's been an effort to actually put numbers behind some of these things that, um, and I wonder if that could actually, change somebody's mind. I mean, we talk a lot and we'll talk to our next, our next interviewee briefly about what it actually takes to change somebody's mind. And perhaps maybe that's one strategy to change people's minds, to, to, to perhaps leave the social argument to one side and say, hey, listen, it's better for you economically. Perhaps your taxes decrease. Perhaps, perhaps your rates decrease. Perhaps, perhaps you're more likely to have access to things that the government provides just by doing the right thing. Anyway, next up, we have Liesl Theron, who's an independent researcher and consultant. She has 10 years experience in activism and research around transgender issues. Liesl, can you hear us? Just one second. Um, I just want to make sure that we've got the right call on. Uh, Liesl, can you hear us? Hello, yes, I can hear you. Okay, perfect. Um, Liesl, I mean, we've just been reading a lot of your research and it's, and it's so fascinating how you've been able to, 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 to capture some of the some of the progress and also some of the challenges and organizing around around LGBT issues, um, and doing uh-huh. so from a <laughs> why you Lisa just started you already laughing. Pardon, sorry. <laughs> um, so I, I I'd just love to start from 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 something you wrote as one of your articles and saying that there's a feeling in some LGBTIA uh, uh, movements and in some of the uh, so uh, pro queer uh, activists that that. As much as there's been a lot of growth and there's been a lot of progress, that there's still there's still some some areas where we're falling short in the impact on everyday lives on the African queer and LGBTI community. Could you speak a bit about that? Yes, I think it is by now time for reflection, if I can put it that way. Mm. And uh, that is maybe the reason why we um, wrote the chapter myself, uh, Mariam Armson and John McAllister, mm. You start um, putting all the different issues on one paper, if I can put it that way, that we start actually calling on our activists and organizers of, of communities throughout different countries to start, number one, reflecting. And many times when you are in places with other activists, um, regardless whether it's a conference or a meeting, you anyway hear sometimes discussions about activists being burned out, being completely, completely tired. Mm. But what is the answer? Because the work is so much. The amount of homophobia and transphobia, queerphobia that we have to counter and work against, if one can call it, is um, overwhelming. So that is one hand what is happening. On the other hand, we obviously do have some sterling um, donor or, or funding partners sometimes, some of them very understanding. However, due to their ways of giving support and money and, you know, restrictions, let's say, with their trust or the way they are set up. Mm. Sometimes activists have to do like a hard and serious M&E, you know, monitoring evaluation and, um, you know, really perform in ways how corporate companies perform. But many times when you're an activist, when you started doing something and, whether you live in a city, an urban space, and have access to uh, ways of learning, or whether you're in a, a rural town, a village, somewhere, wherever, with or without internet, how do you navigate those? And it starts feeling like a quite a competitive area in the way how corporates are competitive. And funding is so limited. So the ones with the best proposals, Potentially funding. So activists are now put in a space similar like a corporate, like really you you almost start thinking the, the, the reason why they're doing what they're doing is on the back burner because they have to professionalize, they have to look good, they have to be able to convince. Now there's so many things at stake and those things come at a cost. I mean, I hear um, you, Lisa. Um, Lisa, I just love to focus quickly on, on your, I love how you started with the individual, the activist. And one of the mm-hmm. things you mentioned is that often an activist, um, on LGBTI issues will get in from a very personal standpoint. Either they face some kind of discrimination or abuse and they, and they want to do something about it. And that's, that's sort of their fuel. And then over time, a lot of the work becomes, 
being in a lot of conferences and a lot of middle class spaces and 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 your sort of reading and your 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 interrogation of this is that they can sometimes become foreign to the communities that they're supposed mm-hmm. to be representing could you just speak a bit about that yes so what happens i think due to this scenario that or context that i described yeah, here yeah. um so sometimes you almost start losing your eye not really because i mean you do go back home in the evening and think about things but sometimes you really have to pick your work as the best presentable you know like literally as if it is a corporate situation um so it it becomes difficult if you think myself and so so many other activists you start doing whatever you wanted to do because there was a need many times activists who really start doing um whatever kind of organization they set up. They do it because there's a need in their community or in their country or whatever. They frame it in a way that, you know, that um, saying the person is political. Which is true. But then what happens, now you need this personal political situation to be funded to go forward. And I think what our essay, what we want to call is, is there other ways of doing it? I'm not saying not having funding, not doing... Uh, the way do we, um, uh, but we want to ask questions. Why mm. are so many activists burn out? Why? Are, uh, let's have a critical reflection. Are we making the impact with the resources? In other words, if you, if you put these two things on a scale, are we getting the impact that we put in? And at a cost of what? So I don't think our essay or call right now have a definite answer. That is mm. the reason why we call for contributors, that we in a collective audience, can put forward the, the, the thinking we have around this. And that's why we try to be as flexible as possible. We don't per se say that people have to contribute in highly academic papers, you know, with citations of so many books that are included in their piece of writing. We would like to hear from activists from their heart if they literally just can say, this is the strategy we, we follow and this is how we do things. Mm. He rejects, for example, the full informed. In other words, that then start being a resistance of its own. We need funding, but we can't fall in an application form that is consisting of seven pages. Mm. That's, for example. So we want to look at, is there a new way to redo things? Or getting where we think we are getting? Um, how can activists remain autonomous? How can they say, but thank you, for whatever support you want to give us, but we actually need it in a different way. We don't need donations of boxes full of second-hand clothing. We actually rather want blah, blah, blah. And activists themselves, in other words, a bottom-up approach, instead of saying um, you should put in a, go- a, a, a grant application for, for the following um, areas because we are funding the following areas, mm. how can activists get the support they need but actually setting the agenda. I hear you, How Liz, can there be a better I, relationship? Yep. Yeah. I'm um, just mentioning that. I Sorry, I just realized I didn't mention that, that this is all from your essay that you've co-authored with a few other people called Where Do We Go From Here? And I um and I will I'll, I'll share the I'll share the link to that and, and you're mentioning the call to applications for people to write and 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 sort of supplement or contribute to the conversation you started, of saying um the LGBTI activism community has adopted a lot of things from donors from state agencies and so it's a time to interrogate that. So I just wanted to give some context. Mm-hmm. Um, Liesl, just two quick questions before we let you go. I just wanted to zoom in on, 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 on the, on the donor funding idea that you brought up. And, and you say that often the donor driven agenda is, is just adopted without being interrogated. And I'd love to hear from you how you think that sometimes this focus on, on monitoring and evaluation and this focus on the standard bureaucracy that comes with donor funding could sometimes lead to less of a focus on the impact and more of a focus perhaps on just the administration to make it look like stuff is happening? The way how it can impact what actually happened in, on a grassroots level. Mm. For example, Organization X, whichever one it is, doesn't matter. Maybe they came into existence, but of course they really feel they need a space where they can actually start coming out with support of you know, the, the organization and the other members are speaking freely about the issue. Let's say that's, for example, a reason why Organization X came out. 
you know, or, or, or came to, to be an organization. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, Organization X really just wants to maybe have these community meetings with the people in the town or the village or the school or whatever it is they want to do. In the meantime, the funders say, well, we can't really give money if we don't see where this is going. It should develop into some advocacy. There should be policy and, and you should be able to create change in your country or in your legislation. Otherwise, we can't keep on giving this. So all of a sudden, community organization X can't only have monthly meetings anymore. Organization X now has to start an advocacy manager that start actually going to advocacy meetings and all of a sudden they have an advocacy agenda. Mm. They maybe organization X might have been ready in eight years time for advocacy, but right now they actually wanted to um to 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 just you know um to focus on the grassroots and the and, community, yeah. Yeah. So in other words, um I'm not saying that what communities are doing right now is not what they would have done maybe, but it should happen more organic. Organizations should come to the conclusion that by the way, we see we need advocacy. Um, so it would have been much better if it could have been the other way around. Um, thanks for breaking that down, Liesl. Um, I think next is something I find really interesting that you brought up, and 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 your interrogation and looking at activism in this space says that that often uh, this this sector can perpetuate some of the same injustices that that it's fighting against. So uh, the idea of disproportionate representation in leadership. So, for, for example, having a very patriarchal setup where only men um, are leading the organization and there's an underrepresentation of, of queer women and trans people. Uh, I'm really, really interested in this idea of how an organization that stands for justice and equality could still perpetuate this discrimination and inequality. Could you speak about where you've seen this sorry, happen I, and sorry, how you think... just broke up a little bit. Can you just quickly say again? Sorry, no, not, that, that's all right. I'm talking about how, how, according to your essay, you think some of the LGBTI activist spaces can perpetuate discriminatory, discriminatory setups basically in their structure. For example, an over-representation of men and gay men in, in their leadership and under-representation of queer women and trans people. Um, it happens yeah. sometimes. Um, I think, you know, it is completely underestimated the amount of power. Um, the amount of um, self-esteem in those pressures from getting funding to survive. You really have a funding bottleneck. If you look at percentages, because as I said earlier, when I try to get hold of me, I'm actually not at home. I'm out uh, somewhere. Um, but the amount of pressure for organizations to survive. So you eventually really employ the director that is going to, or the, the manager or the um, advocacy person to lead your organization to do the best work. Best work is not always meaning it comes from the community. And if you look back at who has usually, if you even within the LGBT sector, look at um, education opportunities. It is your people that is a little bit better financially positioned, class positioned, that have education. So many times, if you look, for example, let's go back to plain grassroots conversation. Here is a certain 14, 15-year-old, a non-conforming school youth, or a transgender person if they already use the word transgender. And they are forced to wear a school uniform. Not long, they're going to actually decide to leave school. Or they are bullied and unsupported. And what happens next? Person is not going to be long, then they're also kicked out from the household, from the family home. If you have a destitute person who is not even 18 years old, who has to find ways to support himself financially, they are not educated even to a matric course on a 10 or a grade 12 level. So if they happen to find employment, they might be employed under their potential. But many others also actually follow the route of, well, finding ways of supporting yourself sometimes includes sex work. But whatever, so you have your most marginalized queer or LGBT or trans youth, gender non-conforming people to really keep on remaining on the periphery of society. And it means also on the periphery of the LGBT community. 
So that trans person, what is that person's chance to get a management or a middle management level position mm. or a board member level or a directorship level at any organization? Because they are not even schooled to the level that a call for job applications is asking for. So you do end up with even within the LGBT sector and community that you're more privileged. You know, it really forms a hierarchy. You're more privileged. You're people that are financially and class positioned better to be educated, to to form into those positions. Those are the ones that run the show, if you can call it that way. Okay. So sorry, even Liesl, within I'm, the I'm, LGBT community, it, 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 it sorry, remains Liesl, a sorry, so yes. we're just about to run out of time. I'm sorry to cut you off. I just want to ask you one quick question, one minute before I let you go. Your essay mm-hmm. has been, some might say, quite, 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 quite scathing of the community, or, or, or better phrasing would be to say you're airing, you, mo- you may be seen to be airing the dirty laundry in public in how, in how interrogative you are of, of some of the challenges in the sector and the space. I would love to just hear from you very quickly. How has it been received? Are people positive about this? Are people, uh, do, do they resent you for this? What's the reception to your essay? We are still busy ourselves as the callers for this essay, you know, caller for contributions, actually trying to analyze what is happening here because we did get actually a number of positive responses of activists and um, individuals who are maybe not necessarily employed at an um, organization, but LGBT community members. We we have a number of um, positive emails and uh, people uh, replying with comments like, it's high time, it's time that we talk about this. We didn't really get any um, negative remarks so far, which on the one hand surprised us because we were thinking that we were so upfront with our essay that we would be challenged. Mm. So um, somehow we didn't get any challenging letter yet. Well, I'm not complaining about that. We are glad. But um, yes, we are wondering what all of that is about. The other observation is that the huge amount of people that give us positive response, however, um, there is still, uh, uh, um, how can I say, space, we could, we could still receive many more contributions abstract. Okay. So we are Lisa, questioning if that is not situated. Sorry, Lisa, unfortunately, I'm going to have to let you go. I will make sure to post your essay on our Twitter and to post, to retweet and, and so on with your call for applications. I'm so sorry to cut you off. Okay. Okay, I hope we have okay, you on sometime in the future, Lisa. Thank you. Okay, perfect. I've had to be very strict on time today. We are, we are getting warning letters and so on here at Cliff Central. So for just our own jo- job security to be able to do our work, we have to be a bit stricter. Um, really, I mean, not much to say in closing. Um, it's just really interesting to as much as we promote the advocacy and promote, promote, uh, not only legislative rights that are equal, but social, social views that are equal. We must also be critical of ourselves as we promote these views. So the reason we really want to talk to Liesl is that she's done a really great job in saying, yes, we're doing good work. But could we be doing better? Are we also are we also perpetuating the same things that we fight against in our organizations? I think it's important to note that today, I think we hardly even touched the tip of the iceberg on some of these issues. So we'll make sure to share the different links and, and, and hopefully start a conversation um, on social media and on future shows where we can delve into this a little bit more. That's it from us. Greg Nicholson, thank you so much. Everybody who helped us put the show together, thank you so much. I will share the podcast as per usual, and we'll see you next week, same time, same place. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com.